Well, as always, if you have a Bible with you, let's open to 2 Kings. This is the Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 20. So chapter 20, there's only five chapters left after this chapter. So we're getting near the end of this really remarkable book. 2 Kings 20, this chapter brings to a close the reign of King Hezekiah of Judah. Hezekiah was a good king, a godly king who trusted in the Lord. He did what was right in the Lord's eyes, like David did. In fact, we have seen that Hezekiah is the best king we've had since David 300 years prior. He reformed Judah's worship. He destroyed all the idols and took down the high places. He was uncompromised in his commitment to Yahweh. He clung to Yahweh. He's a good king. And we saw how his trust was tested and proven in the events of chapters 18 and 19 when the mighty Assyrian army and that great king Sennacherib was outside of Jerusalem ready to conquer it. How he trusted in the Lord and his prayer that we looked at last week in chapter 19 is still a model for us today. Hezekiah, in the book of Kings, we've seen so many kings, Hezekiah is an unexpected breath of fresh air. An unexpected, faithful king. However, don't forget the chapter right before Hezekiah comes on the scene. In chapter 17 of Kings, 2 Kings, we saw God's judgment on Israel, the northern kingdom, and their exile to Assyria. They were conquered because of their idolatry, because of their forsaking the covenant. God comes in covenant judgment and removes them completely. And we saw that in chapter 17, implicit in their judgment of Israel is the judgment of Judah, the inevitable judgment of the southern kingdom of Judah. So keep that in mind. Chapter 20, our chapter this morning, is one more chapter about Hezekiah, and it is an addendum. An addendum. You know what that is. It's something you put at the end of the book here, an addendum at the end. It's an addendum on the life of Hezekiah. Why do I say that? Because the author of our book will signal to us, and I'll show you just a minute as we read this chapter, that the events of chapter 20 actually take place prior to the events of chapters 18 and 19. So this chapter is out of sequence. It's out of chronology. He does that very intentionally and adds two more events of the life of Hezekiah. And yet, chronologically, they go before chapters 18 and 19. He purposely does this as a way to end Hezekiah's reign. And so our question will be, as we come as readers, why? Why did he do this? Why did he include these events here? So we want to see that. Let me read chapter 20 of Second Kings. I'm just going to read all of it. It's not as long as last chapter. Only 21 verses. There are two episodes that he gives, two more episodes in the life of Hezekiah. So let's look at them. The first is Hezekiah's illness and his healing. Chapter 20. If you have a Bible, you can follow. You can just listen. 
to these episodes in the life of this king. Chapter 20. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. That is, he was sick to the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to Yahweh, saying, Remember now, O Yahweh, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly, or he wept a great weeping. And it came about before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court that the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says Yahweh, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of Yahweh, and I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then Isaiah said, take a cake of figs, and they took it and laid it on the boil, and he recovered Now, Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what will be the sign that Yahweh will heal me, that is completely, and that I shall go up to the house of Yahweh the third day? And Isaiah said, this shall be the sign to you from Yahweh, that Yahweh will do the thing that he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or back ten steps? So Hezekiah answered, it's easy for the shadow to decline ten steps. No, but let the shadow turn backward ten steps. And Isaiah the prophet cried to Yahweh, and he brought the shadow on the stairway back ten steps by which it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. That's the first story. Second episode, verse 12. At that time, Baradak Baladin, a son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, and said to him, What did these men say and from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that, they, that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace Of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of Yahweh which you have spoken is good. For he thought, Is it not so? If there shall be peace and truth in my days. Now, then he gives this formula at the end. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, and then he gives you one one thing that he did, and if he just throws you engineer types of bone here if if you like this. He says he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city. And if you don't know, that was a great feat. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. That's probably in preparation for the siege 
that he brought the Gihon Springs that's right outside of Jerusalem and, and he brought, he made a tunnel 1,750 feet underground to bring water into the pool of Siloam so they would have fresh water. So that's noteworthy. So he just notes that at the end. That's one of the things he did. But like normal, these formulas just say, if you, if you want to read the rest of his account, you've got to go find that somewhere else. He's interested in other things that he gives here. So he says, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Hezekiah slept with his fathers and Manasseh, his son, became king in his place. Let me ask three questions of our text this morning to try to get at it, what it's saying. Here's the first question. When did these events take place? When did these events take place? I said they took place prior to the events of chapters 18 and 19. It seems that they took place just prior to Assyria's invasion in the last two chapters that we read about. How do we know that? The author signals it. So you have to read closely. He's giving you signals that this is out of sequence. This is out of order chronologically. What are those clues? Well, look back at verse 6. Verse 6 becomes perhaps the key verse of this chapter. When he promises to heal Hezekiah, he says, I'll add these 15 years and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. That's what we saw. So that hasn't happened yet. So Assyria's invasion is imminent and he's promising that I will not only heal you, but I will deliver Jerusalem from the hand of the king of Assyria. So that's what we saw last week. But in this chapter, it hasn't happened yet. Then we read in verse 13 that the treasuries, the coffers are full there in Jerusalem. But remember when Sennacherib invades, we saw in chapter 18, he clears out the, the treasures there. He even has to strip gold off the doors to, to pay tribute to Sennacherib. So again, this happens before that. Well, when did it happen, these events happen? Well, it seems to happen right before this invasion. And the reason you know that is you just have to do a little math. All right, a little math this morning. We are told, back in chapter 18, that Hezekiah reigns 29 years. He reigns 29 years. And here we're told that God adds 15 years onto his life. So if you take the end of his life and you subtract 15, you know that these events happen around the 13th or 14th year of his reign. Well, if you remember back in chapter 18, there, verse 13 When did Sennacherib come? It says, now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up. So it's the same general time. Right before, probably the maybe a year, half a year before Sennacherib comes and invades is when these events happen. So that's the first. All all that to say, this is an intentional addendum by the author. He is going out of sequence. He's adding these two events at the end of Hezekiah, at the end of his account of Hezekiah, even though they're out of order. So here comes the second question. Why are these events recorded here? So we have to ask ourselves, why did he do that? Why didn't he just keep it in the chronology? Why place them after the events of chapters 18 and 19? I think this to prepare us for the inevitable judgment of Jerusalem by Babylon. That's the last word of the chapter. And that sets the tone or, or really the, the focus for the rest of kings. Judah will not be conquered by Assyria, but by Babylon. Babylon's really nothing at this point. In fact, they're conquered by Assyria right at the same time. And so it's preparing us for the last rest of this book 
as it gives us the last. That's how the author wants us to end the count of Hezekiah, meaning that even though Hezekiah is a good king, not even good King Hezekiah can prevent what's coming. So that's the note it ends on. I think that's why he includes it here. Here's the last question, third question. How are these two episodes, these two events, related, connected? We read about Hezekiah and his healing. Then we read about these visitors from Babylon. How are, are they connected? Are these just kind of random stories at the end? I think they are connected. That's why he chooses these two. How are they connected? I think they're connected this way. Both Hezekiah and Jerusalem are granted an extension of life. That is a temporary reprieve before death, in Hezekiah's case, and before exile, in Jerusalem's case. So these two events, Hezekiah's healing and the visitors from Babylon, are inseparable. They are connected. One leads to the other. That is, Hezekiah's extension of life is what will lead to an extension of life for Jerusalem. Hezekiah's life ensures the life of Jerusalem, at least for some period to come. And yet, judgment will come. So what's the message of this chapter? Here's the message. Here's the one-line message of chapter 20. The extension of life in face of impending death. The extension of life in the face of impending death. That's what these two stories have in common. That's how they're connected. That's why he includes it at the end here. He leaves us on this note. In some sense, what happens to Hezekiah, being healed and given 15 more years, becomes a parable for what will happen to Jerusalem. An extension of life for some number of years and then death, judgment. So this extension is temporary, part of God's mercy. So I think that's the message of the chapter. So let's look just a little closer at these two events and see if we can see these connections, and then I'll just draw two implications here at the end. Here's the first, the first story, Hezekiah's healing. That's what we read first. Hezekiah's healing. Now, we're kind of shocked when we open chapter 20 that Hezekiah, for a reason we don't know, is mortally ill. He has a disease. He has something that will kill him. And what we have here is kind of a reverse of the other scenes of dying kings that have a similar kind of theme that we've seen through different parts of kings. We've seen a few times that when a king gets sick, at times they send for a prophet. The prophet comes and says, you're going to die because of your unfaithfulness. Right? We've seen that pattern. But here that pattern is reversed. He doesn't send for the prophet. The prophet comes to him when he's sick. And we're, I'm expecting Isaiah, the prophet, to say, the Lord's going to heal you. But he doesn't. He says, get your house in order for you're going to die. But the great difference between those other accounts and this account is Hezekiah's response. He prays. None of those others prayed. He prayed. He prayed. You get the sense, don't you, as you read? This is kind of a strange opening to this chapter. What's going on here? Why would he be pronouncing this death sentence on this good king Hezekiah? Well, you get the sense, don't you, that this 
sentence by God is an invitation for Hezekiah once again to trust him. It's an invitation to pray. And he does. So note first, his David-like prayer for deliverance displays his trust in Yahweh. This event provokes him to pray. And that, friends, is always the right response. Now, some have criticized Hezekiah's prayer here, saying he's both boastful, like counting on what I've done, how could you let me down, God? And he's a bit childish and sulking. I don't think so. I called it a David-like prayer because he's just using the language that you find all through the Psalms. David prayed like this over and over. They're not claiming a sinless perfection. They're not claiming some kind of merit before God. They're just stating that they have been faithful to the covenant. That this sickness is not because of their sin. It's not a specific judgment. And he has been faithful to the covenant. This is true what he says. And so he prays accordingly. David often prayed for deliverance from life-threatening situations. So Hezekiah is like David. In fact, you see these resemblances to David all through this text. This man desires to live, right? Now, again, it's hard to put the chronology together here, but he's probably mid-50s, maybe, as he prays this. He wants to live. It's a right desire, right? That's a good desire because life is a precious gift, isn't it? It's a God-given desire in all of us to live, no matter what kind of stage of life, perhaps. And it's appropriate to pray for healing, isn't it? It's always appropriate to pray. This is our response. It's always a right response. Life is a precious gift. Health is a precious gift. We seek God for it. And we should be encouraged to continue to pray because God is able to reverse course. He's able to heal. We believe that. And at times, at times, God extends life. Not all times. Right? We know God is sovereign and good and we, we trust Him in that. But it's right to beseech Him. We see it all through Scripture. So that's a takeaway from this text. God is able and willing to heal. And so while we can, let's beseech Him for it. So that's what Hezekiah does. So I don't think this is a negative thing for Hezekiah. But here's, secondly, here's what's important for the flow of the chapter and for the meaning. His healing an extension of life is bound up with the continued life for Jerusalem. That's the connection here the author wants us to get. The Lord does answer. Again, we, we just see confirmed that truth we thought on last Sunday with Hezekiah prayer, how the Lord delights to answer prayer. He hears us. Isn't that amazing? He hears you. He sees you. He knows you. The Lord of the universe does. And it just, you love that language, don't you? I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. It moves him. I will heal you. Again, I think that's how you know that Hezekiah's prayer is not a selfish, self-centered, self-righteous prayer. The Lord is pleased to answer this prayer. And he does. So he heals him. 
And he says, I said, verse 6 is probably the key to the chapter. Now he heals him. He says, on the third day, you're going to go up to, you're going to be able to go up to the temple again. And I will add 15 years to your life. You got 15 years. Now, I don't know how you think about that. Whether you'd like to be told how many years you have. I don't think I would, but he did here. You got 15 more years. But then he, notice, he connects his healing, his extension of life to deliverance of Jerusalem. Do you see it? I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So this connection that he wants us to see. Hezekiah's life continues to give life to Jerusalem. That's the point. I will deliver you and this city. Now ultimately, God is doing this for his sake, as we saw in last chapter. For his name's sake. He's going to vindicate his name and for David's sake. The promise to David. But Hezekiah is one of those sons of David. In fact, he said that in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David. It reminds him of his connection to David. I'm going to save it for David's sake. So Hezekiah's extension of life somehow grants extension of life to Jerusalem. Now just imagine for a moment if Hezekiah dies here before the events of chapters 18 and 19 and his son Manasseh is on the throne. If you know anything about Manasseh, we'll get to him next time. It's lights out for Jerusalem, right? So his extension of life is somehow granting life to Jerusalem. So keep that in mind. That's, I think, the main point of the chapter. Last note, he chooses the sign that will most clearly reveal Yahweh's power to deliver. He wants assurance of this complete healing. He is healed some level, but remember God says on the third day, you're going to be able to go up to the temple, and I'm going to add 15 years to your life, and I'm going to deliver the city. And so he wants a sign. How do I know this will come to pass? He wants assurance of this extension of life. And again, the Lord doesn't rebuke him for it. Remember his father Ahaz? Do you remember this account? He was supposed to ask for a sign that the Lord would deliver him, and he wouldn't. So maybe he has that in mind. It's a good thing to ask for a sign, and he's not rebuked for it. I'm not saying we should always do that. That's not the point of this text. But God is pleased here to give him a sign, and even to allow him to participate in selecting the sign. And he gets a choice between the shadow moving up or down on the steps. Now, what does that mean? What is that? So kids, you might be saying, what, is, what does that mean? So I want you to imagine now it's sunset. Think of these windows here, and the sun is going down in the west, right? And so as the sun's higher up, and it's casting its shadow on these steps here, right? As the sun goes down, the shadow's going to get longer. It's going to go down the steps, right? So as the sun goes down, the shadow gets longer. Well, that's what shadows do in the sunset. But what if the shadow went up the steps? What would that take? Well, like rotating the earth the other way or something? I, what? That's impossible. That's the point. That's impossible. You can't do that. So Hezekiah says, I want that sign. Right? We can just wait around for the shadow to get longer. That's not too up. But going up the steps, so this is one of those things, and God does it. <laughs> he watches the shadow go ten steps backwards. Remarkable. Again, what's the point of that? Well, it's, it's this theme through Scripture. 
when it comes to God's deliverance and salvation, nothing is too difficult for him. He illustrates that. We think, impossible. I don't know all the astronomy involved in that. I don't know whether I was localized or not. But God did it. And we think, that's impossible. That's the point. Exactly, right. Nothing is too difficult for him in salvation. He can deliver. He can certainly grant life. He can deliver Jerusalem. He can deliver us. Now, probably the point of that specific sign is not only to show how impossible it is, and God can do what's impossible, but it's likely symbolic of granting Hezekiah an extension of life, right? It's like he's turning back time. I'm giving you some more time. I'm giving you, in fact, 15 years. You're living now on borrowed time, Hezekiah. So, that's the first event, first account, the healing of Hezekiah. Now, here's the second part of the story, the second event. Number two, Babylon's visitors. Babylon's visitors. Now, this account is more ambiguous as to exactly what all this means. But we can say this for sure. Their visit is what elicits the Lord's prophecy of Jerusalem's future exile to Babylon. So we can say that much. Their visit is what elicits the Lord's prophecy of Jerusalem's future exile to Babylon. Because that's the point of their visit. That's what comes out of this. Now, it's not exactly clear how to view Hezekiah's actions in all of this. I think the author is just not that interested in that. It's not his point. Most, most commentators, teachers, pastors see Hezekiah as foolish and selfish. And usually, it's, the way it's taught is you kind of read between the lines here, and the, real, the implied or the real reason that these visitors are here is not just to give a get-well card and a gift to Hezekiah, but to seek an alliance with Judah against Assyria, right? Assyria is the threat. Babylon is one of these leading anti-Assyrian nations, and they want an alliance. And so Hezekiah, what he's doing is saying, look at all we have, look at all the resources we'll bring to the table here. And so they say, how foolish of Hezekiah, he's relying on his resources and not on the Lord. Maybe. I just got to read a lot into that to say that. It's just, the author doesn't say. I think it's better not to say. It could be what's happening here, um, his trust in that, but it's not the author's perspective and it's not the author's point. That just goes beyond this text anyway, because his actions may be very innocent. Maybe they did come just to say, glad you're better. <laughs> um, we have a partnership, glad you're better, and he's naively showing them everything. Remember when Solomon did that with the Queen of Sheba? He showed her everything just to say, look what the Lord has done. So maybe it's that. So we, we don't know. All of it. What's most puzzling in the text is Hezekiah's response. So, because of these visitors, they're from Babylon. All the treasures have been seen by them is the occasion. It's at least the occasion for this oracle of the Lord about Judah's and Jerusalem's future exile to Babylon. Not necessarily this is judgment against Hezekiah. 
but it's the occasion because this has happened. And so he gives this prophetic word, as we said, that your days are coming to an end. That all these treasures, they're going to be carried off to Babylon. And even your sons are going to be in the palace of Babylon. And what's curious is verse 19, and a little puzzling, is Hezekiah's response. He doesn't repent. That's why I don't think the point is he's being unfaithful here and he's, the Lord's confronting him with his word and he's saying, oh yeah, he's because Hezekiah's a faithful king, remember. Instead, he says, the word of Yahweh, which you have spoken, is good. It's good. So that's what puzzles us. It's good? What do you mean it's good? And then he gives us his inner thinking here, the author does. For he said, is it not so? Is it not the case? If this is the case, if there shall be peace and truth in my days? Now, again, if you go down the negative route of Hezekiah and see him as foolish and unfaithful, then you read this the same way and say, man, this guy is so self-centered. He's saying, well, as long as I have peace, I care less what happens after I die, right? long as there's peace in my day, no problem. Again, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I just don't think that's Hezekiah here. Not sure how to take it, but at least this. So I'll, I'll give you this last point here. Hezekiah's response is at least a recognition of the Lord's mercy and restraint. His judgment is delayed, but not canceled. When he says the word of Yahweh is good, he's submitting to God's word. Hezekiah knows God's judgment is right, I think, and it will come. But he is thankful for the extension of life, at least during his days. Right? At least in my days. I don't think he's saying, I care less what happens after I'm dead. I think he's recognizing at least the Lord's restraint here and the Lord's continued mercy, even though Judah does not deserve his mercy. So when he says your word is good, I think he means your word is kind to not bring immediate judgment like we saw up north. God is slow to anger. His patience will at least continue during Hezekiah's lifetime. So that's my understanding of the chapter. So that... that response there ties the whole chapter together. So I think that response is important. It ties these events together. The temporary extension of Hezekiah's life signals the temporary extension of Jerusalem's life. Yet, judgment is inevitable. Just as death is inevitable, you have 15 years. Jerusalem, you've got an extension of time, but Babylon's coming. Judgment is inevitable. And even the good king Hezekiah cannot ultimately prevent it. That's my understanding of this chapter. God is gracious to extend life, but ultimately both death and judgment will come. Let me just draw, finish with these two implications from this chapter. Two implications. And like we normally do in our study of kings, we're always seeking to connect it, remember, to the larger kingdom story of the Bible. It's why these texts are here. Yes, we can learn things about praying for healing. We said that. Certainly we can observe that. But again, point of the text is bigger. Bigger. So here are two implications. Number one, God's present delay of judgment is due 
to his patience and mercy. His present delay of judgment is due to his patience and mercy. His, his extension of life right now is due to his long-suffering and his mercy. All through Kings, we continue to see this extension, this delay of judgment. God is patient. He is slow to anger. It's just remarkable. When we use that word patient, the Bible uses that word, it refers to God's long suffering or his slowness to anger. Remember, we've seen in the book of Kings that sin, idolatry, provokes his anger. It provokes his anger rightly in his judgment. But this just wrath God is able to withhold the execution of his judgment. He's able to withhold the display, the execution of that judgment. That's his long suffering. That's his slowness to anger. That's his patience. Sin is an abomination to God. Idolatry, we've seen it over and over and over, certainly is. It will be met with his judgment, but he's able to delay the execution of that judgment. It is a remarkable attribute of God. It's the reason any of us exist this morning. It's the reason that we continue and weren't judged at the first moment of our first sin. It's because God is slow to anger. He's patient. He withholds the execution of his judgment. Again, we've seen this all through kings. Even that northern kingdom that was corrupt from the beginning, 209 years before God removes them. So the same is true today on the, again, these are, these, remember, these are always pointing us forward. These kingdom scenes are picturing the kingdom on the largest scale and God's coming judgment. It's like it will come from Babylon, from Babylon to Judah here. God's judgment is coming and yet he continues to delay because of his slowness to anger. Second Peter relates this very thing. I'll just read part of this. You can listen. This is 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter's talking about this very thing to the church. And he starts by saying, there will always be mockers coming, saying, Where, where's the promise of this judgment you guys always talk about in the church? Yeah, right. Where's the promise of this? There will always be these mockers. And Peter says, it's escaping their notice how God works. But, he says, the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But, don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. This time scale is different. And here it is. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He continues to delay holding out this day of salvation, the summons of repentance. But, he adds, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. It is coming. But he's patient. He's patient. He's slow to anger, and his patience today is for salvation. 
As Paul said, we learned in Romans chapter 2, where he said, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience towards you, not knowing that his kindness leads you to repentance? For repentance. So today, today in God's time scale is a day of salvation. A day of his long suffering. He has extended your life and my life. And so I exhort you this morning and plead with you if you're apart from Christ, you're not a Christian, you're not trusting in Jesus, and you're just saying, I, you know, I really don't think that judgment thing is coming. God's word says it is. Jesus said it is. And today he delays calling you to repentance. He's extended your life one more day. Don't squander this day of salvation. Because we know there's no guarantee of another day. His final judgment is real and is certain. And Christians, oh, how we have to keep that in mind, in our view, constantly. He has fixed a day. Remember Paul wrote in Acts 17, as he was speaking to those men of Athens, he says, therefore, having overlooked God has the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Do you want a sign? Do you want a sign that this day is going to happen? He gave you the greatest sign, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's furnished proof to all men. He's coming. Which leads just to the second implication. And I'll finish. It's the implication we seem to land on all the time because it's the point of the book. Number two, we have a perfect Davidic king who reigns and will never die. King Jesus. We have a perfect Davidic king who reigns and will never die die. Now, if you've been with us in Kings, you know this implication. This is the point, really the big message of the whole book. It's pointing us to King Jesus, a better king, a perfect king. Hezekiah is a good king. He's like David. And his life is extended and that extended life brings blessing to Jerusalem for an extended period, but he dies. And Manasseh, his son, comes to the throne. And once again, we are longing for a better king, a permanent king. And that's what we have in King Jesus. He's a Davidic king. Remember that promise running all through the book of Kings, God's promise to David. One from your line, one from your descendants, David, will sit on the throne forever. So even in our text this morning, did you catch it there in verse 6, which I again said is the most important verse of the chapter where he said, I'm going to give you life and I'm going to defend the city for my own sake. We saw that last week. For God's sake, his glory, and for my servant David's sake. Now that promise is not going to ultimately protect this Jerusalem here. And yet, that promise cannot fail. Ultimately, 
God rescues for Jesus' sake. Magnify his son. And that's what we have in King Jesus. So even though Hezekiah is healed and granted an extension of life, he dies. We need a king that never dies. Right? That's the point. We need a king that doesn't die. Not just one that's healed and given a longer life, but actually one who is raised from the dead never to die again. That's seemingly impossible. That's like the sun going back on the steps. But that's what God has done. King Jesus reigns. Today he reigns. He reigns in power on the throne of David. And he will reign until all enemies are put under his feet. The Bible says. Don't be one of those enemies. With King Jesus. Oh, submit to him and his gracious rule and have life. Because the remarkable thing about this king who never dies, this king who's been raised to an indestructible life, this king who reigns forever, this king extends our life. Not for 15 years, but beyond the grave. This king transforms us into conformity with the body of his glory, even by the power that he has to subject all things to himself. Philippians 3.21 Healing from disease is a gracious thing that God chooses at times to do. God chooses at times to extend life, and we thank him for it, and we continue to pray for it. But, oh, Christian, oh, Christian, don't lose sight of what is ours in Christ. That ultimate healing beyond the grave, made new, transformed, raised. That's where our hope is, and God has done it. Let us rejoice in it. Let me pray as we close. Father, we thank you for King Jesus. Your son, the son of David, raised with power, seated at your right hand over all rule and authority and every named that is named. The one who gives us life and freedom from judgment. We adore him. May we go from here in that hope this morning and in the midst of all of our ailments and Troubles and illnesses and diseases and trials help us cling to the hope in Christ. We ask in his name.